continuing our work through the Sermon on the Mount. We've just started, and we're, we're starting into this beautiful stuff. I want to begin with this uh, interesting reality. We live in a time of unprecedented change. We talked about that a little bit in class this morning, just a little bit. Um, 2007, the world changed, and it changed as dramatically as it did in the 1500s in Gutenberg with the printing press. You remember that? Not the 1500s. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Some of the, no, do you remember 2007? Do you know what happened then? No, well, this happened. The internet came before, but this thing gave us access to the internet everywhere we go. The world is different now. We have created zombies now. You know, zombies that, in fact, I'll preach the rest of the sermon like this so you can be familiar. You know what's going on. And this has changed the way we do family life. It's changed the way that that we do parenting. And it's changed the way that we do commerce. It's It's changed, and not all that changes for the good. It's radically distracted to us. You ever go into a restaurant and you see a bunch of people? You see two people and you're quite certain that they're on a date. And they're texting. Like, man, I hope you're texting each other, weird as that is, because you're on a date right now. If you're engaging with others, what are you doing? Oh, the world has changed. What is marriage? What does that word even mean? You know, for, for millennia, not just religious people, everybody knew what that word meant. That it had to do with a certain sort of family arrangement, that, and its purpose, at least in part, is the procreation of the race, the, the generation of more people. We knew that. The world has changed, hasn't it? We live in this brave new world where definitions are shifting, and, and, and where is the solid ground? What are we supposed to do with that? What's a Christian to do in this brave new world of human trafficking and collapsing morals and changing understandings and weird technology? What are we supposed to do? Well, for an awful lot of us, the Christian answer comes right out of the Scripture. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. And folks, that is in Scripture. And there are circumstances where that is absolutely what we ought to do. Is that really the main Christian response? The shifting, changing world? You'll see that response in a lot of places. And if you're not careful, you'll see that response in your own heart. Are you familiar with the Westboro Baptist Church? I love the Westboro Baptist Church, even though I disagree with just about everything that they stand for. But they give such a wonderful sermon illustration. You know, the, the guys who go to the deaths of soldiers, the soldiers' funerals with the offensive signs about homosexuals and the, the reason the soldier is dead is because of the gay agenda in America and, and that's what Jesus, he, man, he is thrilled by their representing him. Because don't you see how like him? And remember all the times that Jesus went to the funerals of Roman soldiers and held up signs? You know, he picketed routinely. And it, no. But that, they are a huge representative of this response. Is that what we're called to be? In a world of rapid change, we are often, we feel that impulse of, man, I would be safer. My kids would be safer and better off if we just pulled in. And so much of the church is doing that. You know, retreating into itself. Have you ever heard this term, the Christian ghetto? 
Again, we talked about it in class. It's not on purpose. Just happened to overlap. But, you know, what is a ghetto? Well, a ghetto generally is a place where people who don't really want to live there or live the way that a ghetto kind of enforces want to be. You know, it's a place generally of, of some sort of minority population that is denied uh, services and accesses to most of the benefits of the surrounding culture. It's a place of poverty, and it's a, it's a place that, that doesn't have a lot of hope. Ghettos look like this. You know, and I, I feel a little brokenhearted to use real people in my sermon illustration. Those are real persons, and that's their real life. The Christian ghetto, though, I think is actually a misnomer because I don't think we live in Christian ghettos. We've pulled back, sure, but I don't think it's into ghettos. It's into gated communities. We live in the Christian gated community. Are you familiar with the Veggie Tales? You know Silly Songs with Larry? Go like this if you know that. Yeah? You've heard of that? Have you ever heard the gated community? You know? There once was a boy who lived in a house, and the house sat under a tree. By the tree was a fence, and it spread far and wide round the gated community. And then Larry comes on, and he's kicked his ball. and It's gone over the fence, and he can't get his ball and there's people on the other side of the fence, and he says, Can I have my ball? Can you get my ball? I kicked it into the tree. And my ball bounced up, and my ball went in to the gated community. And then there are three gentlemen on the other side of the fence who sing, Oh, the gated community is where we like to be. Everything's so lovely, oh, our hearts feel filled with glee. And when you come to visit, you can stand outside and see what a lovely bunch we are in our gated unity. You're welcome. Song goes on from there, but I won't. But I think the VeggieTale creators were quite prescient because they were singing to children about a dire threat to our existence. When you come to visit, not when you come to be loved, not when you come to be part of us, not when you come to be welcomed, when you come to visit, you can stand outside and see what a lovely bunch we are. They're not singing about a ball, although the kids may know that, but when they get to be 16 or 17, or maybe when they're sitting in the sermon, maybe they'll wake up and go, oh my goodness, what is our deal? Why are we like this? Gated communities, and incidentally, I'm not being critical of you. If you live in a gated community, I don't necessarily want Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on my door either. But the gated community church is a church that, that, that self-protects from that world out there that is experiencing so much change and so much transformation and so much danger and threat that it pulls into itself where it feels safe, where it feels the love of each other and it embraces the love of God. It settles into the wonder of the death and the resurrection of the Christ and is safe. Is that what we're meant to be? Why is this a problem? I mean, after all, 
It says, come out of her, oh my people. And I want my kids to grow up to be good and decent people. Why would I want them interacting with people who are neither good nor decent? Why? Let's, let's just keep ourselves sheltered and protected. And I suppose that's fine as long as you don't have a mission. If you have no purpose beyond yourself, it's fine to be sleeping soldiers. But if there's a reason that you were called into existence, see, we need to return to the mountain. We receive our mission there. We receive who and what we are meant to be as we come into Jesus' presence and He teaches us who and what we are meant to be. And we need to do it routinely. We're going to do it every three to five years in this church. We're going to go back again and again to the mountain where Jesus Christ shares His Word, His teaching, His discipleship training, and calls people into the life of God. We're doing that here this morning. Last week, we started with blessed, right? The Beatitudes. And we worked our way through those kind of ugly and beautiful blessings that He pours out on the audience. He moves directly from blessing to this. And it seems to be quite a pivot, quite a change. To go from blessing to salt. You are the salt of the earth. What is he even talking about? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and he's trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do men light a lamp and place it under a bushel, but in a lampstand, and he gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And what on earth is he talking about? I wanted blessing, at least until he started talking about it. And then I was like, I'm not sure I want this. But actually, yeah, I do. I really do want the presence of God in my life. And the reason that a Christian life is a blessed life is because it's a life with the blesser. My circumstances don't provide my blessing. My King does. My God does. What is he talking about? Why does he shift to talking about salt and light? What is he even talking about? Well, the important thing to unlock this teaching is the very first word. You. And you have to ask, the, the temptation is to go, who, me? And in a way, I have to say, well, I mean, yeah, eventually, but no. No, because he's not talking to you. Who's he talking to? Now, it gets to be you eventually, but but if we skip right over a very important step, then we skip right over the way that it is, in fact, to us. Because it very much is to us, but it's because of our incorporation into a they. Who is the you that he's talking about? Is it Jesus stands on that mountain and he talks out there? Is he talking to humanity in general? Is he talking to all of the peoples of the earth? Because it's recorded in the Scripture, it gets to us. And because He calls us into discipleship, it does become part of us. But who is He talking to originally? He's talking to people who look like that. He's talking to Jews. Okay, Because the Jews are the salt of the earth. When we use the phrase salt of the earth, when we, we tend to think of as you know, really good and decent persons, Jesus has something bigger in mind than that. When He looks at them, He's saying, you're a people with a purpose. You weren't called into existence for you. So when were they called into existence? Well, a long time before Jesus came. 
The people of God were created. They were called to be the people of God in a conversation that God had with a man under a starry, starry sky. As he stood there and God said to him, come out and count the stars in the heavens if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Abraham, do you remember the promises that God made to Abraham? Because they form the foundation stone of salt and light. The reason we are salt and light is because of this promise. A promise made by God. And church, does God keep His promises? Does God keep His promises? Okay, so this is a foundational promise of God, which means this will happen. This is happening even now. And that promise is, those who bless you, I will bless. He's talking to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And all of the families of the earth will secure for themselves a blessing in you. Okay? So as Jesus looks out, He looks out at the descendants. He's looking at the stars that God promised would come. All of these people that He's preaching to. And He's saying to them, you have a purpose. Now folks, if He's talking to you as Gentile, it's because you've been engrafted into the family of Abraham. And you have taken on the promises that God gave to Abraham through Jesus Christ. And so you've taken on the wonder of those promises that that anyone who blesses you, I will bless. Anyone who curses you, I will curse. But also this one. You are called not only to receive, but to give blessing. To participate in blessing all of the families of the earth. And when Jesus looks out at His audience, He says, that's what you are. You're the hope of the world. The hope of the world in in peasants, in an oppressed nation. You are the hope of your oppressors. You are the hope of the world that changes so much and, and changes in ways that you don't appreciate or enjoy. You are the hope of the world that's turned hostile to you. And their hostility does not change your missional responsibility given to you thousands of years before the birth of the Christ. You are the salt of the earth. So the scope of this blessing that God wants to give doesn't end with those people or even with us grafted into it. The scope of God's desire is to bless the entire world. And through Abraham's family, he intends to bless every other family. That means yours, but it also means theirs. And so when you are incorporated in and become part of the blessed people, you're incorporated into the responsibility of becoming the blesser. Your life then is meant to be carrying out God's purpose and promise as He works through you to do it. So when he says, blessed are you, you know, when he started out his sermon and he starts with blessing, to the Jewish mind, you can't avoid Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth will get a blessing in you. The word bless is, is wrapped up in that. And so when they heard the word bless, Abraham's going to come up. And when he shifts to you, you are meant to be a blessing. It just logically flows. It just makes sense. You are blessed to become the process through whom God blesses. And so when he says, you are the salt of the earth, that's what he's talking about. Not you're really fine, decent chaps. No, you're what God's, you are God's agency for blessing the world. 
That's what you're for. To participate in God's care of the decaying earth. When we hear the word salt, we tend to think of a seasoning that's on our table and messes with our blood pressure. Um, But in the ancient world, it had a few more purposes than that. Of course, that third one, that's what that is. That it meant to enhance the flavor of whatever you put it on. And of course, if you taste salt, you think, I'm not going to put this on my food. I'll only taste this. Right? But when you put salt on food, what happens to that food? What do you taste? You taste that food. Right? It enhances that. It brings out the flavor of the food. So when you put salt on something, it makes it more what it's meant to be. You know, it, it enlivens it and refreshes it. it was, salt was also used, I'll go up the slide, to preserve. We still do this a little bit with country ham. You ever eat country ham? Boy, then all you do taste is the salt, right? But it's good salt, right? <laughs> you know? Country ham, what, what can you do with country ham? You can leave it in the room. You know, and room temperature. For how long? I don't know, because I've never seen country ham go bad. You know, it could grow some mold on it. And what do you do? You cut it off, throw that out. You can still eat the ham. You know, it's still perfectly good. It's a preservative that defies death. That defies rot and says, it will not come here, not where I am. And of course, it was also used in some cultic things, some ritual things. Things that were used to bring people into relationship with God. When he looks out at the people listening to him, and and, and as they listen to him preach, he says, you realize, those things are what you're for. You were called to help people become what they were always meant to be. You're supposed to generate a transformation in their lives so that they live better lives than they would live without friendship with you. And, and you were, your purpose is to defy the rot in the world. It's everywhere around us. We live on a cursed earth and a sin-soaked earth. And of course, when it changes, it comes with things that are great goods, but always together with the, the really pernicious evil that is just everywhere. And you are meant to stand against it in people's lives to help to preserve them and keep them from becoming what they will be without you. And how do I do that? Well, of course, it's that top one because the only reason I'm any good to anybody at all is because I love God. Because I'm a friend of God. And I bring with my friendship with God into other people's lives that they might become friends of God as well and be preserved and become what they were meant to be. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, this is what he's talking about. You are the hope that people have. And without you, they have no other hope. Because God didn't promise those promises to Abraham and other people. It was to Abraham. This is where God is working. So you're the hope of the world. But, without the, if the salt shall lose its saltiness... Now, of course, salt can't do that, right? Salt has certain chemical properties... And it can't not have those chemical properties. It does what it does because of its nature. And I think that's why he brought it up. You know, one of the funny things is that people would argue with Jesus going, oh, Saul can't do that. Like, Jesus was going to go, oh, man, I wish I'd come up with a better illustration. I had no idea. Man, I should have studied chemistry. I wish I'd come up with chemistry. 
No, Jesus knew good and well that salt is what it is. Salt doesn't change. But he does say if salt loses its savor, then it's gravel. What is he talking about? Salt losing its flavor. Salt losing its saltiness, its savor. What is he even talking about? Well, it's an analogy. Duh! It's an analogy and salt can't lose its savor, but people, which is what he's talking about, when he said, you're the salt of the earth, they didn't all become pillars of salt. They were still human beings. And while salt can't change, humans can. They do. All the time. And a lot of times for the worse. And as Jesus looks out over His audience, He's looking at non-missional people who have been oppressed, who have been beaten down by the culture, and who don't want to reach out to people that don't love them and aren't like them. And He's saying to them, what good are you then? Because you were called to Me to be with Me in what I want to do for them. I did it for you, didn't I? Do you remember when you were without hope in the world? And the Gospel came to you and you went from gravel to salt. Don't go the other direction. Live in the hope of what God intends for you to be. When He talks about light, have you ever seen pictures like this one? You realize that this is what God sees all the time. I suspect He rarely sees this beautiful of an evening where there are absolutely no clouds. I suspect that's a composite picture. But look, you can find Atlanta, can't you? And New York and Boston and everything in between New York and Boston is like continuous city. You can, you can see those lights from a great distance and you can see Chicago and Des Moines and you can see Dallas. Why? Because they're filled up with light and light is what helps you to see. The reason all these lights are on at night is so that people can get around and move around without danger. What happens when there's a blackout in one of these places? If one of these things aren't lit up, human evil goes nuts, doesn't it? There's deaths and there's violence and there's decay all over the place. And so the light comes and it, and it preserves. And it, I mean, there's enough violence in our cities as it is. We're broken enough no matter what, but if it's cast into darkness, good luck. And so the light shines. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you thought you knew where everything was? But some gremlin came and moved that coffee table. you know, Or maybe your spouse set down the laundry basket. What were they thinking? Right in the path to the bathroom. you know, And, and so now you don't have to go to the bathroom. You have to go to the hospital, right? You know? uh, you ever, why did you do that? Because you thought you could move around in the darkness and you couldn't see it. I mean, if you're walking around and you see the coffee table and you go, Bam! You know, that's on you. That's your fault. What were you thinking, right? But when we can't see, we bruise our shins. People light it up. And God, looking at this, He sees the light. He says, that's what you're like. People don't hide cities. They shine in dark places. And you are the light that this world has got. You are the light of the world, the world cast into darkness by Adam and Eve that has lived in darkness ever since. But God has shown His light first into Abraham and then through His family and most especially in Jesus Christ. And that light has shown into you. So you shine out. And people don't light lamps and put them under baskets. If you lit a lamp and you put it under a basket, then... You're a freak. 
And you're probably burning the basket too. I mean, you're, you're wasting oil and basket by that. No, the purpose of light is to light up the room. And you light up God's house. The whole cosmos is lit up by you. So don't hide it. See, here's the thing. God does not have another you. You're the only you He's got. Now, does He have other people? Of course He does. Yes. God's got millions. You know, in fact, in a way, the entire race is His. But you are unique. And you're the only you God has. And there won't be another one. He won't make another you. Now, with some of us, you look at it and you go, well, of course not. I mean, no wonder. You know, <laughs> he broke the mold because he was terrified, right? You know, no, no. You are a precious, unrepeatable expression of the image of God. And so, in this world, wherever you find yourself, you are there as God's. You. And you are there as salt. He intends to preserve. He intends to rescue. He intends to enliven the world around you by His work in you to call others to the same sort of thing. This is you. This is what you are. It's what you were for. You are His light in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. You're like, well, I don't run into many non-Christians. Okay, well, who do you run into? Be salt there. Because you were called to it. So when people encounter you, whoever they are, is it your kids? When people encounter you, is it your coworkers? Is it your people in, that you go to breakfast with You know, on, on Thursdays once a month? Is it the people in your HOA? In your gated community? Whoever it is. When they encounter you, do they encounter the blessings of God? Because that's what you're for. When they see you, does your life make people praise God? Because that's what Jesus said. So let your light so shine so that people see it. And they give glory to your Father in heaven. And incidentally, that isn't just something they do verbally where they go, wow, what a great Christian. To give glory to God in your life means that your life reorients into the presence and nature of God. So that everything about your life comes to reflect Him. When you do that, when you live by God's priorities, you are giving Him glory. Don't you realize that that's what He wants to do to your friends? To call them into this as well? Let your light so shine that the transformative work of God goes out through you and into everyone that you encounter. And your encounter might be brief. If you're in a checkout line and and somebody is beeping your groceries, they ought to leave the encounter with you having a better day than it started because God has blessed them through that short encounter. And if it's somebody you got a lifelong relationship with, love them. And let the power of God's protective and redemptive and transformative work be at work in you, and it might be at work in them.
because you're the hope of the world. So we, we are how God keeps His promise made so long ago to the ancient patriarch. That's what Jesus was saying. When He looked out at those Jews, and He looks out at His disciples that have become incorporated into Israel, He's saying, you are how I'm going to get it done. And there is no plan B. It's you. So, wherever you find yourself, whether it's in a situation like that, or something totally different, whatever you find yourself doing, whatever you find yourself inhabiting, whoever is in your life, be salt with them. Be light that shines into the darkness. Because here's, here's the reality. Those who want blessings must become blessings to others. When he talked in the Beatitudes about, about especially the second half of the Beatitudes, and says, blessed are those who are kind of beat up for being good, so often it's being good to somebody. They're fulfilling their missional responsibility. If we want to have the good life, it's found in being God's person everywhere you go. Period. And it's not found anywhere else. Everything else is illusory. Everything else will change and it will fail you and let you down. But this never will. Because this is the work of God in you. So be light. Be salt. And you will be blessed. How are you doing? How are we doing with this? I so want to be what He's called me to be, don't you? Look into your life and see how, how and where am I salt. And realize that it's God who can make gravel salt. The gravel can't go really hard and become salt. It's the work of God. And if you look at yourself and you say, I'm not living a very salty life, then let God change. Jesus changed water into wine. He can change gravel into salt. You can do it. But you've got to ask for His help. And if you look at yourself and you're saying, I'm living a non-missional life. What am I doing? And let God change that. Ask for His help and we will pray for you. It may be that you came in here and you're carrying a heavy burden. It has nothing to do with anything I've talked about. That's fine. The church still cares about you and wants to care for you. And if you need the prayers and the blessings of this church, let us know. We want to pray for you. And if you're not a Christian, today's the day to start. Come be salty with us. If this morning... You're subject to the invitation of Christ Jesus. Why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?